That verse really does focus on the command that we are given to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so the other scriptures that I'd like us to read focus on just the the centrality of this command to love. And so after reading 1 Peter 1, 22, we're going to read the passage in scripture that is perhaps clearest of all on the importance of love, the centrality of love, and that is 1 Corinthians 13. So Anna will come and read that for us. After that, Krista will come and read for us from 1 John 4, 7 to 12. That tells us what is the source of love. How do we become loving people? So you can listen for how to think of that question in 1 John 4, 7 to 12. And then lastly, Moira will come and read for us from 1 Timothy 1, 5. And again, this is just another reminder of the same point of 1 Peter 1, 22, just the centrality of the command to love one another. So at this time, uh, Christy, if you want to come up and begin our scripture readings. 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for the prophecies, they will pass away, and as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as... I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. 1 John 4, 7-12 Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loves us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Well, I don't know if you're as staggered as I am by just the continual refrain in Scripture to love. Um, as we saw just from our readings just now, we saw this command to love repeated from every major author in the New Testament, did we not? We have it in Peter, we have it in John, we have it in Paul, we have it everywhere in the New Testament that we have this command to love. Now, why is it that this command to love is so central? Why is it that it is repeated so often? Again, just to look at our passage this morning, 1 Peter 1, 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why is it that we get this command over and over again, even amidst commands to holiness, like we saw two weeks ago, even amidst commands like fear the Lord, like we saw last week, we also see these commands to love again and again. I think it's because love is actually the greatest miracle that God can work in the human heart. Love is the greatest miracle that God can work in the human heart. Now, just a few moments ago, we read 1 Corinthians 13 together, right? And there in 1 Corinthians 13, you see discussed a couple other miraculous things, do you not? He talks about speaking in tongues and how that's worthless compared to love. And yet speaking in tongues is this clearly miraculous thing, right? You're speaking in a language that you don't know, but suddenly you're able to understand it and speak it. He talks about prophecy, right? Prophecy is another miraculous thing. It's a word given directly from God that you, you can then speak to others. And yet, what does the Apostle Paul say about prophecy? He says, compared to love, worthless. And so even these other things that we think of as being more clearly demonstrative of God being at work, more clearly miraculous, more clearly evident of God being present in our midst, Scripture tells us over and over again that it's not these things over here that are most evident of God being in our midst. Rather, it is love that is going to be most evident of God being in our midst. Now, I know if you're like me, this kind of unsettles you, right? Usually when I pray for God to do some miraculous or powerful work in my heart, I am praying for one of the more clearly miraculous things to happen. I'm praying, Lord, give me powers of healing so that I can heal anyone who's sick. I'm saying, Lord, give me the gift of tongues or interpretation of tongues so that people know that you yourself are speaking. Give me prophecy so that I'll have insight into things that only you know about so that people will truly know that you are in my midst, that you are with me. And I want to pray for those things. And I do pray for those things. Those are not wrong things to pray for. I pray that God would move in those ways. And yet, God can move in those ways without necessarily anything fundamental changing in my heart, right? God has worked miracles by many different means and by many different sorts of people. We see in the Old Testament, there are many people that are given the gift of prophecy who don't really have any love for the Lord in their hearts. Right? We see King Saul 
who is spoken of as being among the prophets because there was a time or two when he was caught up in the spirit and speaking words of prophecy, and yet Saul had no genuine love for the Lord. In the book of Numbers, there was even this evil sorcerer, Balaam, right? Who came to curse the people of God. He was hired by God's enemies to come and curse the people of God. So someone who clearly despised Yahweh, despised the God of the Bible. And yet, God, by his power, turned the words of this evil sorcerer, Balaam, so that he would speak truth and speak blessing over the people of Israel. No change in his heart, nothing remarkable in his life. And so we so often want these things that don't involve our internal character transformation, that don't involve us having to fully engage our hearts in the commands of God. We want these other things to happen where God just kind of comes down like lightning and just makes something remarkable happen, makes something wonderful happen so that we can point to that and say, oh, see, God is in our midst. We want to point to these things and we don't want to have to undertake the hard and the arduous work of love in order to demonstrate that, yes, God is really in our midst. And yet, beloved, if we want people to know that God is in our midst, if we ourselves, our own consciences, our own hearts, want to know that God is with us, love is the indispensable virtue. It is the indispensable ingredient. We see, we see why in 1 John 4, right? 1 John 4 says that God is love and whoever loves has been born of God. God is love and whoever loves has been born of God. So if God is love, how could it be that anyone who is then born of God, anyone who then knows God, anyone who then claims to be in fellowship with God, how could it be that they do not love? If the most central aspect of God's character, one of the most essential things about who God is, is that he is love. And yet we want to act as if love is some second or third order commandment. We want to elevate so many other things above love. Maybe it is miracles, or maybe it is doctrine, or it could be any number of other things that we think of the church really needs to prioritize. The church needs to do more than anything else. And yet again, Scripture over and over, from Genesis to Revelation, points us in the direction of love as the most essential thing that we must do. Indeed, I think this becomes clearest of all in the ministry of Jesus Christ, does it not? When Jesus comes, he has a ministry of teaching truth, yes. He has a ministry of healing, yes. He has a ministry of instituting a whole new religious order. Yes, tearing down the old, bringing in the new. He does all of these things. But in all of these things, he is exercising a heart of love. And ultimately, his sacrifice for us, his death upon the cross, the greatest work that he ever did, is spoken of preeminently as an act of love, as a deed of love. And so we who claim Jesus as our Savior, Jesus as our Lord, if we want to walk in his steps, how could it be that we give our lives to anything other than love? 
in whatever way we want to look at it, in whatever way we want to come to God's word, asking, Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me give my life to? What would you have me most work on? What would you have me focus on at all times? However you want to come at that question, the answer is always going to come back, love. Love others. Now here in 1 Peter, he's focused particularly on love within the church. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now notice that word brotherly. The word brotherly is important because it's telling us that he's talking about the sibling sort of love that we have for one another. Since we've all been adopted into God's family, we all call God our father. That means that we are all brothers and sisters. And so the love that we are to have for one another, the type of love we're supposed to have, is spoken of here as brotherly love. And sisters, obviously don't get caught up on the word brotherly. You're included too. You can have sisterly love for one another. And I want to love you as a sister. I hope you love me as a brother. But the love that it's talking about is just love that exists within the church. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And then he reiterates again that this is love spoken of as being in the church because he says love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now that word one another is significant because remember when first Peter wrote this letter, he was writing it to all the churches that we saw listed in Peter 1.1. And so his intention was that they would receive this letter and then when they gathered together, they would read this letter together. That's what this letter was originally written for. And so if they were in their church fellowship, their church gathering, and they were reading this letter and they said, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, who would they be speaking to? They would be speaking to one another, the people within the church. And so again, this command to love one another earnestly from a pure heart is commanded to us in the church. Now, Peter is actually going to stay on this theme for a while. In fact, going all the way down to chapter 2, verse 10, we're going to remain on this theme of loving one another in one way or another. And so let me just look real briefly at where Peter is going with this command to love. And maybe it'll help us to see why this command to love is so important. So we've read verse 22, then looking at verse 23. It says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So that maybe seems like a little detour, right? But then notice 2 verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Do you see what he's commanding there? He's commanding the removal of everything from the church body that is not love, right? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. These things are all going to be things that are barriers to our loving one another, right? If we're slandering one another, if we have malice toward one another, we're not loving one another, right? So 2 verse 1 is basically reiterating the very same command as our command here this morning in one twenty-two, And then continue on, verse 2 of chapter 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So pause there again. Notice how this is reiterating the same thing as loving one another as 1 verse 22, because verse 5 says, we are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. But as Jesus himself says, a house divided against itself cannot stand, right? If we hate one another, if we are not loving one another, we cannot possibly be a spiritual house. We cannot possibly be living stones built up into one single holy priesthood. Rather, we will each be going off in our own directions, making up our own priesthoods, doing our own things because we love ourselves and our own opinions more than we love one another. And so if we are going to be a spiritual house, if we are going to be what God wants us to be, it presumes that we are united. It presumes that we are one. It presumes that we are loving one another. And so loving one another is integral. It's critical for becoming a spiritual house. But keep going. In verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So again, it sounds like Peter's going off onto something else, right? But look, he snaps right back to this theme in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you hear the emphasis there in those closing verses? The emphasis in verse 10 in particular, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, meaning once you were divided, once you were scattered, once you had nothing in common, once you were at enmity with one another, once you hated one another. But what's changed? Now you are God's people. Now you are one people. Now you are a people. Well, how can we be a people? We love one another. If we are still hating one another, if we're still divided, if we still have nothing in common, if we're still not united, then we are not a people. We are not a holy nation or a royal priesthood or a chosen race. No, as verse 10 answers in conclusion, we have received mercy. And because we have received mercy, now we are a people. We're not a people so much by our own wills and desires as if I came up with the idea of a church and I decided that I wanted to be in a church with all of you. No, it's God who had mercy. It's God who placed us in his family. My responsibility, because he has also shown mercy to me, is simply to love everyone else whom he's shown mercy to. Because if God loved them, surely I should love them as well, shouldn't I? And if I think that my wisdom is better than God's wisdom, if I think that I should be able to say, Lord, you really did not mean to add this person to your family, did you? This person really is not part of your church, right? I don't really have to love this person here, do I? I just show myself as setting myself up against God. 
thinking myself wiser than God, thinking that I know how to live my life, I know who to care for better than God himself knows who I should care for. And so what do I do? I submit to the church. I submit to those whom God has placed in the church. And I say, Lord, this is where you've placed me. These are the people that I will care for because you have called me to love this people because you yourself have loved this people. You have shown me mercy. You have shown them mercy. So we are united. So we are now a chosen race. We are now a royal priesthood. We are now a holy nation. And so if we are that way, then we must love one another. After all, if, if people could look inside the church, if people could look inside the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, and inside the church all they find is division and disapproval and competitiveness and comparison and thinking worse of others than we think of ourselves, if they look inside God's chosen people and they see that, what will they rightly conclude? It will rightly conclude that either God is a very foolish God who doesn't know how to teach his people right from wrong, or they will conclude that we are not actually God's people at all because we don't seem to know anything better, we don't seem to be any different than the world outside where there is always conflict going on and violence and hatred. Beloved, if we are going to identify as what verse 9 calls us, if we are going to identify as a chosen race, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, then it is required of us, it is essential that we fulfill verse 22, that we love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That we love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now notice that verse 22 does speak of something needing to happen in us Before we love, does it not? The very beginning of verse 22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So notice that word, having. Having purified your souls. This is describing for us what has happened in order for us to have this sincere brotherly love. Our souls have been purified. Well, how have they been purified? It says, by your obedience to the truth. Now, my understanding of these words here, by your obedience to the truth, is speaking of believing the gospel. Believing the gospel. Because it is by believing the gospel that our souls have indeed been purified. And if you go on just a little bit later in verse 25, It says, this word is the good news, is the gospel that was preached to you. How is it that we obey the truth? If we're spoken something like the gospel, something that is just good news, something that's an announcement of something that God has done, right? The gospel is not a command to us. It's not something that we have to do. The gospel is the announcement of what God has already done in Jesus Christ. Well, how do we obey that? How do you obey something that's essentially just saying, look at what God has done? You believe it, right? You accept it as truth. You accept it as reality of what God has done. And so our obedience to the truth means that we believe the gospel. 
Jesus himself reiterates this point in John 6, verses 28 and 29. It says that they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus replies, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God. This is obedience to the truth that we believe in Jesus Christ. And we also see that belief, that trusting in Jesus Christ, owning Jesus as the punishment for our sins, as our propitiation, owning that, acknowledging that that really is the reality, we see that that really does purify our souls. So 1 Corinthians 6.11, it says, Such were some of you, meaning some of you were wicked. But then it says, But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So notice that. You were washed, sanctified. Sanctified just means made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's the name of Jesus Christ that purifies us, that washes us. Again, it's not our own efforts, it's not our own deeds. It is the work of God. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. By the blood of Jesus Christ, our consciences are made clean. We no longer feel that we bear the sins that we have committed because we have placed our sins upon Jesus Christ and he has taken them to the cross and to the grave forever and ever. So no longer is guilt our master, but rather freedom is our master. God himself is our master. And then lastly, John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what frees us from the wrath of God? What gives us eternal life, fellowship with God himself, belief in the Son? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And so, beloved, if we want our souls to be purified, or as the end of verse 22 says, we must love one another earnestly from a pure heart, If we want our hearts to be pure, what must we do? We must believe in Jesus. We must appropriate the sacrifice that Jesus has made as our own. We must count Jesus' death as our death. We must count Jesus' resurrection as our resurrection, as our newness of life. We must not Think of ourselves as able or needed to bring something before God on our own. Thinking that we can justify ourselves before God on the basis of the works that we perform. Beloved, if that is our mentality, if that's how we think we're going to become pure, we will never love. We will always be so fixated on our own performance, on this question of am I doing good enough? Am I doing it right? Have I done enough to now be in the presence of God? We will never be able to actually receive the love of God. Because if we want to be able to love, we must first receive the love of God. You see, God knows very well that our nature as humans is not to be fountains of goodness. (laughs) 
Our nature as humans is not to be able to pour out of ourselves all that is good and pleasing and needful. No, our nature is to be creatures of need. Our nature is to be creatures of lack. Indeed, when God created us, created human beings in his image, he created us precisely to be dependent creatures, to be creatures that need to look to him, to see what we're supposed to do. That's one of the major points of significance of being created in his image. It means, do you want to know what you're supposed to look like? Do you want to know who you're supposed to be? Well, you're just the image of something else, of someone else. You're the image of God. Therefore, you cannot be independent of God. You cannot figure out on your own how you're supposed to live, what your life is supposed to look like. Even when we want to come to God, we cannot think that on our own, we will be able to do works that are pleasing to God. And in that way, we will be able to come to God. No, we understand that we are simply image bearers. And if we want to bear the image, then we must depend upon God. We must come to God as people who are in great need. Jesus himself promises that God's love itself will be poured out in our heart if we come to him dependently. John 17, 26 says, I have made you known to them. That's Jesus speaking. I have made you, God the Father, known to them. And I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me, the love God the Father has for God the Son, may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus himself wants to be in you. Jesus wants the love that the Father has for the Son to be in you. When you read in 1 Peter 1.22, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, do not for a moment take that as something that, okay, now I've got to figure out how to do this. Now I've got to, you know, what do I have to change? What am I doing wrong? Let me figure this out. Don't approach it in that way for even a second. When you, when you read this in 1 Peter 1.22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, you know what you should do? You should say, woe is me, a sinner. God, have mercy upon me. I come to you now. And beloved, as you come to God, as you come to God, the love that the Father has for the Son will be poured out into your heart. Jesus himself will take up residence in your heart. And the love that you then have for others will be the love of Jesus Christ flowing through you so that you cannot take any credit for the love that you have for others, but so that God alone gets the praise. Beloved, I know myself. I know that in my heart of hearts, I am as selfish as it could get. There is nothing in my flesh that I dislike more than the idea of being put out for other people, right? If I could, in my flesh, design my perfect day what would my perfect day look like? It would look like a day where everything revolves around me, right? Where everything fits my comfort, everything fits my schedule, everything fits my desires. In fact, I may not even have a plan for the day, right? Because at 6 p.m., I may want something different than what I want right now. And so why not just wait till 6 p.m.? And when my desires come up at 6 p.m., then I can fulfill my desires at that time. That's the way all of us naturally want to live our lives. We want everything to revolve around us. And yet, what is love except precisely the opposite of that? (laughs) 
precisely saying, my desires will not be my master, but rather the needs of others will be my master. Now, if the needs of others are our master, then how will we live our lives? Well, obviously, everything in there depends on what we define as the needs of others, right? If love means that you're doing all that you can to seek the best of others, and I think that's the the best simple definition of love, is that you're doing all you can to seek the best of others, then a lot depends on what you define as the best for others, right? If you think that the best thing for other people is that they be really comfortable, then what is loving them going to look like? Well, it's going to look like doing everything you can to make sure they're comfortable, right? If you think that the best thing for people is simply that they have food to eat, then what's your love going to look like? What's your life going to look like? It's going to look like doing everything you can to make sure everybody has food, right? And our culture right now, we all know, is very twisted in knots, is it not? Because of how many wrong ideas we have about what we think of as best for other people. Right? Even right now in popular culture, there's this great debate raging because there are so many doctors that think that one of the best things that they could do for a young person is to do surgery or operations on them that might change their bodies so that their bodies conform to some internal preference of gender that might not be the same thing that it is on the outside. And so the doctor does have the right idea of love in one sense, that they want to do what's best for the other person. The problem is just that they think that what's best is actually doing surgery, changing their bodies on the basis of some internal preference that people have. Now, if that were actually good for people, we could be fully in support of that, right? If that would actually make someone happy, if that would actually lead to greater fulfillment, then we could say, yes, we should do this. This is love. But we know that it is not love because we know that it's not good for people, right? It's not best for them. It's not going to make them happy. It's not going to make their life better. In many cases, just a short time down the road, they'll even themselves regret the decision that they made and want to be something else, but now they can't because the surgery's been done. And so you see how this wrong idea of what is best for people can lead to terrible practices of love. And so, so much depends, beloved, so much depends on what do we think is truly best for people. And so... What do you think is best for people? What do you think is best in life? When you meet someone else and you want to have the mentality of Christ, you want to have the mentality of 1 Peter 1.22, even just think in the context of the church, I want to love my brother, love my sister right now, earnestly, from a pure heart. What does that look like? What must you do? Well, again, where your mind is immediately going to turn is what's best for this person? Beloved, I hope... We know, I hope we know from our own experience, from what we ourselves have seen, from what we ourselves have heard, from what we ourselves have felt, I hope we know that what is very best for a person, what is most wonderful in all of life, is to know Jesus Christ, is it not? Jesus Christ is the answer to the deepest need of every human soul, of every human heart. 
There is no one on earth you could possibly meet who will not be satisfied with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. If we as human beings were created in the image of our maker, and if Jesus Christ himself is the perfect image of the maker, then what is going to be most delightful for our souls, most wonderful to us, most satisfying in any moment, is going to be Jesus Christ himself. It is simply impossible that anyone on earth who is a human being, it is impossible that that person will not be satisfied with Jesus Christ as if they could want something more, as if they could be designed for something else. Of course, yes, it's true that many people are blind to this reality. They don't think that they need Jesus Christ. They don't think that Jesus Christ is going to, be, is going to make them happy. When they see Jesus Christ, all they see is regulations and Jesus telling them they can't do things that they want to do. And so they think that Jesus is not going to make them happy. But beloved, what does love say in the face of that? Love doesn't say, oh, well, I guess if if you don't think that's for you, then that that must not be for you. I'll serve you in some other way. I'll, I'll love you in some other way. Beloved, there is no other way to love. If you do not strive to give people Jesus Christ, if you do not strive to lead people to Jesus Christ, you are not loving them. Now, obviously humans have a whole host of needs, do we not? We do need food. We need shelter. We need clothing. We even have more emotional needs, not physical things, but also things that aren't exactly spiritual. We need friendship. We need recognition. Anyone who has children knows that children need care and compassion. Humans do need all of these things. And so we, if we are going to be a people of love, should be earnest to give people those things as well, right? We should never poo-poo doing these other things because we only want to give people Jesus Christ. John himself says that if you say you love your brother and yet you see him Shivering in the cold, he needs a coat, and you won't give him a coat? What good is your love? It's worthless, right? And so love does seek to meet the physical needs of other people. It's ridiculous if you try to take Jesus Christ to someone, and you see that they're hungry, and yet you don't do anything about their hunger. It makes nonsense of your profession to love. And yet it also makes nonsense of your profession to love If you just give people food, but you withhold from them the very best news, the very best thing in all of existence, Jesus Christ himself. And so we, as believers in Jesus Christ, do not separate one thing from another. We don't separate caring for people's physical needs from caring for their spiritual needs. We don't pick and choose the most comfortable way for us to love. Again, the whole point of love is that we are displacing ourselves. We are displacing our desires, our preferences, so that we can serve someone else, whatever they need. That's what love is. That's what Jesus did for us, right? He did not even count his own life as something worthy of being preserved. Rather, he knew what we most needed. We needed fellowship with God. And we could not have fellowship with God because of the weight of our sins, because of the iniquity 
the vileness, the stench of our sins, God could not receive us. And so Jesus gave his very life in order that we might be able to come to God. In order that, as 1 Peter 1.22 says, that we might be made pure. So that in purity, we might now come face to face, come hand in hand, heart to heart with the God of all creation. And as we do that, God himself is pouring this love in our hearts. And why is he pouring this love in our hearts? So that we can precisely go and live the sort of life that Jesus himself lived. The life of taking up a cross, saying, I myself will bear torture, will bear execution for you so that you can know what is best, so that you can know Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, so that you will have the food you need, so that you will have the shelter you need, so that you will not suffer. This is what Jesus did, and so this is what we do. But again, understand, beloved, we don't do it as performance to get grace from God. We don't do it to earn favor so that God will then love us. We do it precisely because God has already loved us, because we've already come to know God's favor, because we already know fellowship with God. And that's the only way, the only way we will be able to live lives of love unless our souls have been purified by obedience to the truth. We will never love. And again, I contend if your soul has been purified by obedience to the truth, then you will want to do nothing other than love because you will be so mesmerized, so enraptured by the image of Jesus Christ as the perfect example of love that you will simply want to live for him. You will simply want to live like him. We understand that love is painful. By definition, because it's not according to our preferences. It's not according to our wants. It will take work. It will take self-denial. There may even be times when we are being obedient to God in the power that God supplies, and we may even be shaking our fist at God for giving us a command like this because we don't want to do it. And yet we persevere, we press on. Precisely because the love of Jesus Christ is flowing through us and our love for him is pulling us onward and pulling us forward. Just a couple weeks ago, we looked in 1 Peter 1 that we are to set our hope fully on the grace that we brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is why we must set our hope fully there. Because if here below on this earth we are going to live a life of love for others, we will live a life where we suffer much emotional pain as we love others and they are torn from us or as they reject us in one way or another. We will live a life of pain as we sacrifice financially, sacrifice our time, sacrifice in other ways for the good of other people only to see those things spat upon or not used in the way that we wanted them to be used. And so if if our hopes are in this world, if our hopes are in this life, we will be run down. We will not be able to live the life of love. But if we set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to us at the coming of Jesus Christ, if we set our hope fully there, and if we embrace God fully right now saying, Lord, I want your love flowing through my veins, And if we live only in the light of the love that God has already poured out on us in Jesus Christ, beloved, then we are talking about a life that will turn the world upside down. 
Then we are talking about a life that nobody who does not know God could even understand in the slightest. Because we are not looking for any reward here. We are not seeking any gain here. We may not even be experiencing much joy here as we live this life of love. And yet we will have joy deep in our bones nevertheless because we are looking to that coming day. Because we have this deep relationship with our God, with our Savior that cannot be shaken, that cannot be taken away from us. Right? We cannot be separated from the love of God. And so we will persevere. We will love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Loving one another in this way is not so much a matter of emotion or of feeling. It is a matter of determined wish that they will know what is best. Me loving you isn't so much a matter of how I feel about you moment to moment. It's mostly a matter of asking the question, am I really determined that they come to know and savor Jesus Christ above all things? Am I really determined that they won't suffer financially, materially in any way that I myself do not also suffer? If I will determine, make that determined wish that I serve you in that way, and if you will do that for me, if you'll do that for one another, just as you look across the chairs here, if you will do that for one another, beloved, then we will be a church. (laughs) Then we will be who God designed us to be. The church is not so much a matter of me being a preacher, me being a pastor. It's not so much a matter of having elders or deacons. It's not so much a matter of having a weekly service where we all come together. Being a church is mostly a matter of 1 Peter 1.22, loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. Beloved, if we did that spontaneously, we wouldn't need to have a planned Sunday service. We wouldn't need to even have pastors or elders, right? We would just be that perfect kingdom of God that Jesus had planned all along. But of course, we don't do that perfectly. And so we have to set times on the calendar. We have to set a schedule. We have to have elders. We have to have church discipline. We have to have all these things so that we can be funneled into this cause of love that Scripture gives us over and over again. So, beloved, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And as you do that, let us see the kingdom of God rise. Let us see God add to our number daily those who are being saved because they see the life that God calls us to and they see that it is more beautiful than anything else that exists in this world. That's my prayer for us. I believe that's what Peter wants us to see again as we go on to see the, the nature of a spiritual house, the nature of a holy priesthood, we'll see how it means that we love one another and that we exhibit to the world the very nature of God and we proclaim the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Would you go to God with me now in prayers of intercession and prayers of confession? Heavenly Father, we do confess that we are not a people of love as you would have us to be, Lord. Lord, we do love, but so often we love so weakly and half-heartedly. We don't love earnestly. And so, Lord, we pray for your mercy and we pray for just a renewed outpouring of your Spirit, God, so that our hearts 
might be elevated to love as you yourself have loved God. Forgive us, Lord, for our weakness here. Forgive us, Lord, for our failure here. And would you truly make us your church, God? Would you truly make us a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a people for your own possession, by making us people of love? Would you hear our prayers now, God?